0: God, you are more near to me than I am to myself. Those are not the words of uh, Oprah Winfrey or Tony Robbins or the Dalai Lama. Those are the words of St. Augustine. I think Chris is right. We're distracted. There are so many things going on. The cocktail parties of our minds run wild. And so I want to invite us, just as we begin to take a moment to take just a few deep breaths and to hear the words of St. Augustine inviting us back into the silence where God dwells in the great interiority of our being. God, you are more near to me than I am to myself. So just close your eyes and take a few deep breaths and be with a God who never, ever leaves you. Father, Son, and Spirit, Our souls are weary. We long for rest. We are in the kind of work that leads to loneliness and exhaustion. And sometimes we wonder, in the midst of the activity of our lives, if you are even really present. Let us trust the words of Scripture. Let us trust the words of Augustine that you are always present. It's we who've walked away. And so we long to reconnect with you even today, even this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's good to be back at Surge. It was uh, eight, nine, ten years ago or so that I first got acquainted with Surge, Tyler, and Chris and the work that they were doing. And as I thought about coming back, I I wondered about The Chuck that was up here speaking, I think maybe back then, to the Surge School, back eight or nine years ago, Uh, I was here to talk about spiritual formation, but I think, if I were really honest with myself, I was tired, and I was running on fumes, and I hardly had anything to say um, that came from a deep inner place. And so I was asked to talk about flourishing and mission today, and I went back to some of my old talks. And um, I've got some really good talks on flourishing and mission with statistics and symptoms, you know, the kinds of symptoms that we pastors struggle with when we're weary, when we're tired. I remember doing a talk in Miami to a bunch of church planters. It was now about probably 12 years ago. In fact, I remember this talk very well because they thought no one would show up to it. Um, and so they put Tim Keller up there with me, me, this kind of young, late 30 something sitting next to Tim Keller. I'm like, hello, sir. Hello, Mr. Keller. Um, what, what do you want to do? How do you want to participate? And he said, oh, I will just sit here. I'll just be here next to you. It's your talk. And so I remember in that talk, talking about the statistics and talking about the health and sustainability of pastoral ministry. As I looked over every once in a while at grandpa, you know, to see if he was still there and, um, I remember when people came up to me afterwards, uh, more people came up to me to ask about the point that I made about irritable bowel syndrome and pastoral ministry than anything else, I think. <laughs> Somehow, some way that connected with people at the time. I look back, I had some talks on flourishing and mission. What does it look like to be healthy and whole in ministry? And then I was sitting in the bathtub last week, and I was reflecting on my last 10 years. I've been doing a lot of reflecting lately. I turned 50 in the next few months, and... Um, And in some respects, the last 10 years have been uh, 10 years of dialogue with myself about who God is and where God is and what God is doing in my life and what happens next. Um, And I thought about a woman who has been a constant companion to me during these last 10 years, a 16th century reformer named St. Teresa of Avila. Have you heard of St. Teresa? We'll talk about her a little bit today. Uh, This is supposed to be called Flourishing and Mission. I I was thinking about some other titles, like How a Catholic Mystic Saved a Reformed Addict. Um, Maybe a title like Deconstruction and Humility. Uh, Maybe one like Notes from the Bathtub. (laughs) But I want to share with you, and maybe, uh, perhaps, I'd assume today, maybe a less articulate way than normal, because these are still growing thoughts, growing reflections in me about how this 16th century saint has, uh, how God has used this 16th century saint to invite me to depth, to rest and to humility. How um, St. Teresa of Avila could meet Uh, A a, a guy who grew up on R.C. Sproul, of all things, who went to Ligonier Ministries conferences and read John Piper and studied the the, the Westminster Confession. You remember the old G.I. Williamson study guides to the Westminster Confession and who got a standing ovation at the end of his PCA ordination committee for getting all the answers right. How in the world can St. Teresa of Avila help me? how St. Teresa helped me in a season of massive disorientation and massive deconstruction, the kind of deconstruction that often leads people to a kind of season of vague spirituality or watered-down theology or maybe even abandoning the faith, but how she led me through a season of wilderness to greater humility. So much so that I can say that I love and know Jesus more today than I ever have. And I'm so thankful for that. Uh, or maybe how a celibate nun from the 16th century could speak to a late 40-something married man. How could that be? I was introduced to St. Teresa of Avila when I was studying at Wycliffe Hall Oxford University in 1997, and I don't say that to impress you. I say that to impress me because I really needed that back then. I was studying at Oxford with Alistair McGrath, great Reformed theologian, Uh, He was there to reinforce all of my categories, to remind me that I was right. (laughs) Alistair McGrath, who in the late 1990s must have been going through his own midlife crisis because he was talking a lot about therapy and he was talking a lot about what he was learning from his wife as she was calling him out on some really important things. And he was dropping names like Hildegard of Bingen and and Catherine of Siena and Catherine of Genoa and Methilde of Magdeburg and... Hadowich of Antwerp and uh, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. I'm thinking, what in the world is this Reformed theologian dropping these Catholic names for, let alone women? Can I learn from women? Alistair McGrath introduced me to the interior castle of St. Teresa of Avila, and I've been sitting with it and dwelling in it since then. Almost 23 years now, this book has been working itself out on my heart. St. Teresa was born, baptized Teresa Sanchez de Cepeda y Ahumada. You want me to repeat that for you? Teresa Sanchez de Cepeda y Ahumada during the height of the Spanish Inquisition. She was born two years before Martin Luther posted, uh, posted the 95 Theses on Facebook. And uh, just to see if you're awake. Where did, where did he post the 95 Theses? On the castle door at Wittenberg. Of course, we all know that. Two, just two years before that, St. Teresa of Avila was born. Uh, she chose, she was a feisty young woman. I could talk a lot about her biography. She was feisty. She was an adventurer. She wanted to be one of her brothers. She wanted to go off and fight in the Crusades. She'd often take one of the swords and she'd run out to the field and her dad would chase her down and say, come back, come back, come back, Teresa. One of the most patriarchal cultures probably of all time. You are meant to be a dutiful wife. And she was going to have none of that. So she decided to join a monastery. Monasteries back in that day were like social clubs, 170, 180 women gathered together. There were frequent visitors. There was a life of discipline, but this was not the life of slavery that she expected if she were to be in a marriage during that day. She was an extraordinary woman. One biographer says this about her. Teresa was infused with a quiet flame that set all boundaries on fire and ignited every heart she touched. She was physically beautiful, voluptuous and sultry with luxurious dark hair and sparkling black eyes. She was a musician and a dancer, a poet and a theologian. She was a prolific writer that it earned her the distinction of the first female doctor of the church, meaning that her theological contributions had permanent impact on the development of Roman Catholic thought. Her exceptional intellect was balanced by her passionate emotions. She was gregorious and impatient, alternately inclined toward radical solitude an intimate connection with community. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, calls her a Protestant reformer in her own right. She was a reformer. But she was before that a feisty young woman who at the age of 39, after many years in the convent, many years in the monastery, playing the game, doing the, the monastic rule, enjoying the social life of the monastery, had an encounter with Jesus. It was an ordinary day. There was a gathering at at the monastery, and she was looking for one of the statues of Jesus that they needed uh, for the communion. Uh, She walked through a hallway. She happened to see the statue propped up against a wall, and she looked down, and up looking at her were the eyes of Jesus. Sad eyes, suffering eyes, pained eyes, Again, her biographer says this, her face was simultaneously wrenched by the anguish of injustice and radiant with compassion for all living beings. Teresa herself says, said to Jesus, I'm so sorry I've neglected you all these years. Look at all you've endured for love of me and I've never really loved you back. And then she wrestled and she wept. And she repented and she asked things of God And she pledged that activity for God would never, ever again eclipse intimacy with God. She was 39 years old when she encountered the suffering Christ. And in some ways, in the eyes of the suffering Christ, some sense was made of her own life, of her own pain, of her own story, of physical illness, and emotional trauma. And she decided to move in a different kind of direction. This was her midlife moment. I've been reflecting a lot about midlife. I was a pastor for 15 years and I've worked with pastors for a good uh, number of years. For 15 years, I've been doing psychological assessments with pastors. I've taught at three different seminaries over the years and I've seen a lot of things as I've worked with pastors over the years. I've never met a pastor who hasn't had to face his or her own limitations his or her own addictions, his or her own painful issues from the past, his or her own trauma, his or or her own health issues, his or her own infidelity, his or her own addictions, his or her own exhaustion, his or her own theological deconstruction or suffering of some kind. I don't know a pastor who I met, who at some point hasn't had to deal with that stuff. Maybe at 25, we're pretty resilient. You know, by 35, you you know, things start to set in. For me, I I think about three things that impacted me throughout the course of my 30s in particular. Uh, Number one, health issues. I felt really good in my 20s. In my early 30s, I started having gut problems, all sorts of gut problems, and they couldn't figure out what they were. Any of you have, the, have had the mandatory colonoscopy at 40? You don't have to raise your hands, too vulnerable. <laughs> I had my colonoscopy at 31, and an endoscopy, and another colonoscopy two years later, over and over again, test after test after test, we're, we're not sure what's wrong with you, Chuck. But I lost hours of sleep and hours of work, days and hours of work, sometimes weeks of work. All because of these health issues. What's wrong with me, Lord? Is there something chronically wrong with me? What's going on with me? Uh, Real real quick, I'll tell you... um, it was, I was 39 years old. We were sitting on a beat. I, uh, I was a pastor in San Francisco. We had traveled down to Cabo, Mexico for a much needed vacation. You ever have it where when you go on vacation about two or three days in, it's like your body starts feeding back to you all that you'd done to it previously. <laughs> you know, all the repression, all the shutting down. Uh, I start throwing up. I, I start getting sick. Uh, my wife, my friends say to me, you've got to go to the hospital. I don't need to go to the hospital. I can deal with this. I've been doing that for 10 years. Finally, they take me to the hospital, Mexican hospital in Mexico, right? I can't speak the language. They can't even get an IV in me because I'm so dehydrated. They take, a, um, they, they take all sorts of different tests, but when they finally take the ultrasound, the doctor starts laughing, and he's pointing, 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 and finally they translate it gallstones. So many gallstones, <laughs> I was in the hospital actually three or four days longer than it normally takes because my system was so septic, so infected. Health issues. I wasn't taking care of myself. I encountered failure and success. Um, And both are teachers, aren't they? Failure is a teacher. I was fired from my first job in ministry six years into my work at a PCA church. And I dared to confront the pastor. And I did it in a way that uh, was um, was painful for him and painful for me. And two days later, I was told, you don't have a job here anymore. we just put a down payment down on a house. Failure. I was out. And a few years of working in some church plants and a few years of, of trying to get it together, doing a little bit of clinical counseling. And then I was invited on to a church staff in San Francisco. Success. I was in the I was in in the inner pantheon of pastors who were trained under Tim Keller. I was invited to speak and teach and have some influence. I was given offers to write books. Success. with success comes arrogance. And with success comes egocentricity. And with success comes working harder and harder and harder. Because if I stop working, what will happen? So that's why I say nine or ten years ago, whenever it was, when I last spoke at Surge, I don't even know where I was. I think I was trying to say something important about spiritual formation, but I was lost. And then contradictions, finally, contradictions in my own heart. Uh, my, My last book, Wholeheartedness, really emerges out of this. Contradictions in my own heart, divisions in my own heart. I'm not even sure who I am when I wake up in the morning. I'm not even sure who I am when I look in the mirror. I don't recognize myself. Not connecting to my wife. I'm barely present to my own kids. I'm seeing divisions in myself. I'm seeing divisions in my church. What's wrong with me? St. Teresa of Avila, 39 years old, a midlife moment. Maybe you've had a moment like this, a moment where you've experienced your own limitation, where you've experienced suffering. Maybe it was a moment of theological deconstruction. Creation wasn't seven. 24-hour days? Huh? What? Not making any contentions here. Don't worry. We're not going to have a debate around the table about these kinds of things. But you know the kinds of things that come up? Wow. You know, you know uh, Gordon Fee and Roger Nicole make a really persuasive case for egalitarianism. I might have to think about that. Theological de- deconstruction, health issues, and so I spent more time with St. Teresa of Avila, and I want to share just briefly five things that I've learned from St. Teresa, five things that I've held on to, five things that I've wrestled with during midlife, five five invitations that have um, been really, really important for me uh, now that I'm on the verge of 50 and I'm, I'm wrestling now with what do the next 20 years look like? And the first invitation that St. Teresa offers is the invitation to self knowledge know yourself know yourself know yourself she was steeped in the writings of saint augustine now as a woman in the 16th century she didn't she was not given access to all the scriptures she was barely given access to to theology texts but she loved augustine's confessions the first 9 chapters augustine tells his story with profound honesty and by the time you get to chapter 10 Uh, He begins with the words, Noverum me, Noverum te. Let me know myself. Let me know you, O Lord. Let me know myself. Let me know you. Let me me know two things about myself, if I could summarize St. Teresa of Avila. Let me know my dignity, and let me know my profound dependence. In my tradition, they call it depravity. Sometimes I like to call it dependence. (laughs) My profound dependence on you, O Lord. Let me know myself. Let me know my dignity. Her classic work is the interior castle. The soul is like a diamond, and Christ sits at the center. Christ, the king, dwells at the very center of your life. God, you are more near to me than I am to myself. There is nowhere that you can run from the presence of God. Christ dwells at the very center of you. It's you who've walked away, as Meister Eckhart says. She believed that God was at the very center. She said, I myself cannot come up with anything as magnificent, nothing as magnificent as the beauty and amplitude of the soul. To use the words of one of my professors back in the day at Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando, we are designed for dignity. We are beloved image bearers. She never forgot that she was a beloved image bearer, that the reminder the, the n- reminder of self-knowledge, is to remind yourself each and every day that she is the apple of God's eye, that God loves her. John Calvin actually said something very similar. I don't have the quote in front of me. I should have brought it with me, but he said, say you're walking along the road at one point, and you see someone who doesn't even know Jesus on the long si- alongside of the road, and that person is a person in need. Not, Don't look upon him, but look upon the image of God in that person. For the image of God recommends that you give him everything you have, all of your possessions. John Calvin said that about the image of God in sinners. Dignity and dependence, or some people call it depravity. She talked about our attachments. She saw sin not as mere behavior, but she saw sin as attachment. The old word in the Latin is attache. It's like our heart is nailed to something and it has great power over our lives. And She says, you got to look at yourself. you got to look at your life. It's not just those peccadillos up here above the water line. It's what your heart is nailed to. It's what's really important to you. I want to be known. I want to be understood. I want to achieve. I want to have influence. I want to be a success. What is your heart nailed to? What are your heart's attachments? She said, Hold these two things together. A a rabbi put it this way. This rabbi said, Keep two pieces of paper in your pocket one that says, I am a speck of dust, and one that says, the world was created for me. Keep two pieces of paper in your pocket. One, I'm a speck of dust. I am dust, and to dust I shall return. I'm limited, I'm fragile, I'm dependent another piece of paper in your pocket that says the world was created for me. I'm a beloved image bearer. I'm the apple of God's eye. God looks at you and delights in you. And she said, self-knowledge does not lead to navel gazing. Uh, I'm a therapist. I love therapy, but self-knowledge does not lead to getting really angry with mom and dad after a good therapy session. She says, self-knowledge leads to Humility. Humility, humility, humility. She says, without humility, all is lost. She says, self-knowledge is so important. I never want you to cease cultivating it. Without humility, all is lost. About a year ago, I got done with a book that we'll release in March. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church. Hardest book I've ever had to write. I've been involved in narcissistic churches and systems as a consultant for about the last 10, 12 years. Deeply painful. Pastors who big, build, build big ministries, 500, 1,000, 10,000. I'm a success, right? When narcissism comes to church, she says, cultivate humility. Cultivate humility. Self knowledge, invitation number one. Number two, grace. It's all grace. A Catholic says it's all grace? That's not possible. I learned early on Catholics believe in works, Protestants believe in grace. Simple as that. And then Alistair McGrath said, I probably learned more about grace from St. Teresa of Avila than I've learned from any of the other Protestant reformers. Her interior castle, she talks about seven dwellings. It's like a developmental psychology uh, written during the 16th century Seven dwellings. The first three dwellings kind of make you think that you've got it all together. The first three dwellings are like what you can achieve, what you can accomplish in and for God. And, and in many ways, you and I know a lot about the first three dwellings. Let me tell you all the things that I've accomplished. It's always interesting to me when I'm introduced and I'm, I'm thankful to Chris because we have a relationship that he, he didn't do this, but Chuck has written this and Chuck has written that and he got a degree here. and you got All these things that mean nothing absolutely nothing. Has he cultivated humility? That's what I want to know. Does he spend time with Jesus? Is he surrendered? Is he humble? But the first three dwellings for St. Teresa of Avila kind of make you think that you're large and in charge, kind of make you feel like you're in control. And then she takes you into the fourth dwelling of the interior castle. And in the fourth dwelling of the interior castle, she says, aren't you exhausted by now? And this is, this is essentially how she paints the picture. She says, it's like you've been living like this. You've got a bucket in your hand and you've been taking your, taking your bucket to cisterns to fill them up. One after another after another. How was my sermon? Um, did I do a good job? What's the vision like? Is the church growing? I'm taking my bucket from cistern to cistern to cistern to cistern to cistern. How would that feel after a while? Maybe at 25, you're pretty resilient. You can carry a lot of buckets. You put them on your shoulders, on your back. You know, but let me tell you, by, by about 35 or 40, they get a little bit heavier. Um, by the time you're 50, you know, um, you know, like me, you're practicing yoga, and you're like, I, I didn't know my body could get into poses like this just to keep yourself healthy. Come on. I mean, it's, it's like I just can't do it anymore. I'm exhausted. She says, why are you car- carrying your buckets to cistern after cistern after cistern when Christ is a living Water. Christ is like the raging river dwelling in you and through you. You don't have to go looking for the water. The water is infinitely available to you. The water, as Augustine might say, is cl- as close as your breath. Why are you trying so hard? Just rest. Just be silent. Just listen. Just receive. It's all Already yours. Uh, There's a really wonderful book called *The Critical Journey*, written by Janet Hagberg. She says we all at some point have to hit a wall. (laughs) I can't do it any longer. I'm just not sure if I can do it. I'm just not sure that I can continue to pastor. I'm just not sure that I have the energy to keep the ministry going. I'm just not sure that I can get up and give another inspiring message. I'm just so lonely. Uh, The addiction is just so much. You exhausted yet, put down the bucket and just drink deeply of the water that's already infinitely yours. Christ dwells within Christ, the living water. Christ has never gone away. Christ knows you. There are no surprises to Jesus, okay? He knows the attachments. He knows the addictions. He knows your fear. He knows where you run to. He knows your anxiety. And so in the fourth mansion, she says, just drink. Third observation. Uh, The title of this one, if you're taking notes, could be called Butterflies. Butterflies. What do butterflies have to do with spiritual refreshment? Well, St. Teresa, because she was a woman, because she was not given access to the scriptures like men were given access to, Um, had had to trust her experience of what we call general revelation, creational revelation. We were formed people like creational revelation. (laughs) We like general revelation. We can learn a lot from it. And so she used the power of observation, and she looked at the life cycle of butterflies. And the wonderful thing is now we know a lot more about butterflies than she knew even back then. So let me give you a bit of a retrospective and and tell you what I think she was thinking of as she wrote this chapter... On butterflies and transformation. The butterfly begins as a caterpillar, a little consuming caterpillar that creeps along the ground. You and I begin in that way too, um, young pastors that are uh, reading and reading and reading. And re- this year, I was looking at my Twitter feed, and, and I was, um, I was. I was reading about how some of these pastors out there were putting up their lists of here are the forty books I've read this year, here are the seventy books I've read this year, here are the hundred books I've read this year. Caterpillars consume. I need more and more and more, more resources, more information, more, more um, knowledge, more, 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 more. Young, less mature congregation members are like that too, right? They're consumers. Uh, Pastor, you know, our marriage is in trouble. Can you do a series on uh, godly marriages, right? Um, Pastor, I'm a single, and and we singles are wondering, uh, do we have any place in the church? Can you do a series on singleness? I want more. Create this program. Create that program. I remember when I was a young pastor, I didn't have a clue about this. So every time someone came to me and said, can we start a singles ministry? I was like, guess so. (laughs) Can we start a marriage ministry? Guess so. Um, can we do more, uh, more tri- uh, tri- uh, can we do some triads uh, on, for divorce? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, yeah, Whatever? We're consumers. We take in, we take in, we take in. The cell of the caterpillar says consume, eat, devour. Um, and then in an instant, something called an imaginal cell appears in the life of the caterpillar. And the imaginal cell, and this is my translation, my theological translation of what the imaginal cell does as it awakens in the life of the caterpillar. The imaginal cell, as it begins to reproduce and multiply in the life of the caterpillar, says, you are made for something more. You're made for something more. You're made to fly. Now, that feels pretty good. That feels We're made to fly. We're made to soar. Have you ever had someone say to you, you're made for so much more? I think you're going to do big things. Boy, I've I've taught a lot of students in seminary, but you, you've got a special gift. You're made for something more. What the caterpillar doesn't know is that its next task is to spin the cocoon that it will die in. You're made for something more, but death, wilderness, disorientation is the next stage of the journey. And I don't like that because I'm a white American Christian. <laughs> I like up and to the right theology. You know, bigger, better, stronger, faster. Let's go, let's go, let's go. I have a new vision. Let's make it happen. In three steps, in seven steps, in ten steps, come on. You're made for something more. But you may have to die in the process. In fact, St. Teresa of Avila Doctor of the church, great 16th century reformer says, you may need to spin your own chrysalis. Sometimes there are times when you and I need to do things, arrange our lives in such a way um, that we encounter death. We go to therapy, talk to a friend about the deep addiction uh, go to a pastoral colleague and say I'm not sure I can do it anymore I've been faking it for the last year every time I get up and preach I feel so distant from God Butterflies You know the rest of the story we used to have a butterfly garden when I lived in Orlando and my daughters were really young at the time now they're 18 and 17 but they're really young they're really young at the time and so you know the the caterpillar would form or spin the chrysalis right my daughters would go out there and say can we help it <laughs> You know, the wing's starting to push out. Can we help it? No, 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 no. Because the wrestling has to happen. All good wilderness journeys involve wrestling, you know? And even there, the, the, the caterpillar becoming the butterfly is wrestling, pushing, pulling. The wing pops out. Another wing pops out. I tell Emma, don't, 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 don't touch it. It's going to be just fine. It takes time, though. It's slow growth, See, we want it fast. We want it efficient. You know, we like our time-lapsed uh, butterfly transformation process, right? We watch them on YouTube, but that's not how it unfolds in our lives. Oh, that hurts so bad! It's going to be days, weeks, maybe years of recovery. One of the things I had to reckon with when I wrote "When Narcissism Comes to Church" is how quickly some of these pastors want to get back into ministry. I'm ready. I'm okay. I'm fine. She pushes a wing out, pushes another wing out, and then the butterfly is there. And my daughter Maggie comes along, and Maggie says, oh, can I put it on my finger? Can I help it to fly? No, 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 you've got to wait, because it just needs to open its wings and bask in the sun. It's not in a hurry. It's not in a rush. Sometimes flourishing in mission means just basking in the sun for a while. Number four, ordinariness. The ordinariness of ministry. Last two, and then I'll be done. The ordinariness of ministry. Um, you all familiar with Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction? Such an important book, I think. When, when I did my research on narcissism, I heard the word extraordinary. I just want to be extraordinary. I just want to have influence. I want to move to the city and do great things for the kingdom. I want to do extraordinary things for the kingdom. But I'd venture to say that most of you around these tables are pretty ordinary. You know, you get up, take a shower, you feel kind of tired, kind of groggy. You have two or three or 17 bowel movements in a day. You know, I mean... You haven't written anything too terribly profound. You know, your sermon that people can podcast hasn't yet had 190,000 listens. You know, you're just really ordinary. And then the sixth dwelling of Teresa's interior castle, uh, the the, the sixth dwelling... By the time you get to the sixth dwelling, it's a, really, it's a really long chapter. Like, you can make your way through the first five dwellings of St. Teresa's Interior Castle pretty quickly, and then you get to the sixth dwelling, and she goes on and on and on and on and on. And I've been teaching on this for about 10 years now. My students are like, why does she go on and on and on and on? How come she wasn't? like?" And I said, "Like she didn't have Microsoft Word back in the day. She didn't have a good editor she just goes on and on and on about life and about ministry and about relationships and about how she needs people and how she had a bad day and how she had some stomach problems and health issues and how um, she's in a particular season of of feeling like no one liked her and uh, a particular food that she likes and on and on and on about the ordinary things, which is, uh, you know, that's just where a lot of pastoral ministry is lived, right? The ordinary things. The ordinary stuff, the ordinary life. It's really hard nowadays when we have access to social media and Twitter and Facebook and people's blogs and podcasts. It's like, how can I make my mark? How can I distinguish myself? How can I, you know, how how can I brand our church? How can we do something genuinely unique and remarkable for the sake of the city? And I just want to say, Jesus shows up probably more often than not in the ordinary. And I'm not saying that. God doesn't use some of the extraordinary folks who come along. Every once in a while, there's someone, you know, there's the Billy Graham. But, I mean, most of you, me, are pretty ordinary. I'm going to be really tired after this week, and I'm probably going to climb under my covers and sleep for 17 hours because I'm an introvert, and I'm basically kind of a generally anxious person, and I will have expended all of my anxious energy over three days and thank the Lord for the production of Xanax, and and then go my merry way, watch a movie on the plane, not talk to anyone. I'm not sharing the gospel with you if you're on the plane sitting next to me. (laughs) Go home, pull the covers over my head. Ordinariness. It's okay to be ordinary. It's really okay. Long obedience in the same direction. I met Eugene Peterson a few years ago, I was amazed by how ordinary he was. Um, I remember asking him about prayer. I said, you're a man of such beautiful words and profound words. How do you pray? Teach me how to pray, how Eugene Peterson prays. And he said to me, I've learned the apophatic way. If you know contemplative spirituality, you might know that word. I've learned the way of silence. I'm just really quiet nowadays. I just like to sit with Jesus and be intimate. Ordinary. I want to invite you to be ordinary. And finally, union. Union and communion. The seventh dwelling of the interior castle is the dwelling uh, of, of spiritual marriage. It's a dwelling of union and communion. She says the spiritual marriage is like rain falling from the sky into the river. There's nothing but water. You know those moments, you know, once every ten years when you just feel one with the Lord. You know, so much of the time, it's you scattered and out there doing this and doing that. But every once in a while, we get a taste of union and communion, intimacy. I, um, I love the extended passage. I want to read it to you from St. Augustine. How Augustine is reminded that when he's out and about looking for God and created things, in this place and that place and influence and prestige and achievement and success and being remarkable that God simply dwells within him, remains with him, inviting him back. It's a familiar passage. Augustine says, late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Lo, you were within. You were within, but I on the outside, seeking there for you. And seeking there for you upon the shapely things you've made, I rushed headlong, I misshapen, but you were with me, and I was not with you. They held me back far from you. Those things which would have no being were they not in you. But you called. You shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared and blazed and banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped and now I pant for you. I tasted you and now I hunger and thirst and touched and you touched me. And I burned for your peace. When at last I cling to you with my whole being, there will be no more anguish or labor for me, and my life will be alive indeed, alive because filled with you. Doesn't that feel like a lovely invitation in the midst of anxious moments, fragmented lives, tired bodies? I always think about that older brother in Luke 15. You know, the father had to run out to the younger brother, but the father actually had to leave the party to go to the older brother too. The older brother who said, I've been slaving away for you for all these years. Look at all I've done. I built this ministry. Look at what we've done in the city of Phoenix. Remarkable things, community development, stuff for the poor, tens of thousands coming. I've been doing all sorts of great things for you, Lord. And then God says to him, Son, I am always with you, and everything I have is yours. Martin Laird says that union with God is not something to be acquired. It's something to be realized. It's all already yours. He's more near to you than your very breath. God is infinitely available to you. You don't need to take the bucket anywhere else. God is simply smiling and waiting and inviting. And say so may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you his peace.